Now I'm sure that you all know how to boil a frog. Actually I can't imagine why you would want to boil a frog. I, I prefer them pan fried with just a touch of garlic. But if you did want to boil a frog then you certainly need to know how. Because you know that if you drop a frog in a pot of boiling water it will just hop out frantically. But if you place it gently in a pot of tepid water and gradually turn the heat up. The water warms, it heats, the frog bathes in a restful stupor. And before long, with a smile on its face, it will allow itself to be boiled to death. Well, we'll return to frogs later, but let's have a look at Solomon's story so far. Solomon's given wisdom by God. And we've been learning in recent weeks, haven't we, that he's organised his kingdom brilliantly. He's made wide, wise decisions on the economy and trade and commerce. The nation is secure, it's at peace, it's prosperous. Solomon himself lives in grandeur and is internationally highly respected. Last week we saw the visit of the Queen of Sheba who was literally gobsmacked or left breathless in amazement. Now in chapter to 11, suddenly it seems disaster strikes. Jonathan's just read so well for us the whole of that chapter and is, we've seen that Solomon turns away from the Lord God, that he worships other gods and it all starts to go badly wrong. There are attacks from neighbours, there is civil war, there's a split of the kingdom and then the long downward moral slide of the Israelite nation eventually into exile. I think the, the writer of One Kings here intends it for us to be really shocked at this apparent sudden reversal. Glory in chapter 10, disaster in chapter 11. And we're intended to ask questions because it's, actually it's not really a surprise, is it? We've seen hints all along. God's told Solomon directly, directly in appearances, not once but twice, to keep his commandments. As a reminder, look back with me at the second of these two appearances back in, in chapter 9. God gives Solomon a clear warning after he received that promise. In verse 6, But if you turn aside from following me, or your you or your children, and you do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I've given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out from my sight. Israel will become a proverb and a byword, it's a joke, amongst all peoples. And what are these statutes and commandments that Solomon is supposed to be keeping? Well, last week Greg pointed out the rules that he'd set out for kings back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 15. Here it is on the screen. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you, it reads. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only, and then there are three commandments. Number one, he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And then what did Solomon do? Chapter 10, verse 26. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen. That's a lot of horses. And where did those horses come from? Verse 28 says, 
Egypt. Commandment number two. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. And what did Solomon have? We've read today in verse 3. 700 wives, 300 concubines. I think that counts as many. Commandment number three. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Again, we saw last week, chapter 10 and verse 14. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year, that's one year's tax, was 666 talents of gold. That's an awful lot of gold. And that's besides uh, that which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and all the kings of the West and from the governors of the land. That's a huge amount of gold. It couldn't be clearer. Solomon's broken all three of God's commandments regarding his kingship and he's done so in spades. And you don't need the wisdom of Solomon to work it out. So I've been scratching my head this week. Solomon is supposed to be wise, but how could he have been so stupid? Well, let's look for some clues as we come to uh, our passage and the second area of disobedience that is focused on here in chapter 11, that relating to his wives. And I think here there is a warning for us too. Uh, just as that wise frog, Solomon, boiled in his comfortable warming water, maybe we're at risk of doing so too. Firstly then, Solomon's dulled conscience. There's a clue in, in verse 4 of chapter 11. Notice, it was only when he was old that his wives turned his, away his heart. It took time. It was only when he was old. Yes, Solomon loved his wives. He clung to them, it says in the second verse. But how did he get that far? How did he get to that place? Maybe he had just one wife whom he married to seal some foreign treaty. Maybe she wasn't pretty enough, so he thought, I'll get myself just one concubine for my own pleasure. Uh, that doesn't count as an additional wife, surely. Maybe then he needed to seal another foreign trade deal, OK? That must be all right, because it's for the greater good of Israel. Another foreign deal, trade deal. Now I've got three wives. Oh, I might as well have four. I'd rather fancy that princess from, uh, from the Ammonites. Perhaps he felt a little bit uncomfortable about that. And then maybe he thought, God's word's a bit outdated here. It's not keeping up with the times. Today's ideas permit multiple wives. After all, other foreign kings have more wives than I do. It's a sign of status, and we can't have Israel looking poor. In fact, maybe I should have more wives than them to show how great Israel is. And I can keep this under control. They won't lead me to worship other gods. After all, I am wise. So I can have five wives, or six, or twenty-five, or twenty-six, or thirty, forty, fifty, sixty. You know, I'm still being blessed. I no longer feel guilty about all of these wives. Actually, I don't even think about it at all. Clearly, it's not a problem. And so the numbers grow, and eventually he has... 400, 500, 600 wives, 300 concubines as well. So starting with excuses, comparing himself with the world around, considering he knows better than God's word, he feels okay about it. And gradually the frog's bath water warms up and he no longer realises he's even doing wrong. 
It was only when he was old that his wives turned away his heart. Solomon had forty years of rule, under which their women's influence worked on him. Forty years, as he came under the influence of these foreign wives. Forty years. And as he, uh, as he sought to manage the inevitable tensions amongst uh, his household, maybe he would show favouritism to his preferred women. Presumably, from verse 5, the Sidonian and the Ammonite princesses in particular. His disobedience led to a gradual and growing problem over many years, ending up with him not just disobeying God in this one area, but actually worshipping other gods. Disobedience in one area led to Solomon becoming deaf to God entirely. So it strikes me that continuing to be disobedient in any matter whether small or big, does have this effect of deadening your conscience, making you increasingly deaf to sin and its consequences. The frog, gradually warming, boils. Solomon's continuing living in sin, literally, with his wives, eventually led to a big problem worshipping other gods. And, you know, perhaps there is a greater danger amongst those of us who are older, and I guess I'm beginning to think about these things now. But cynicism and weariness and arrogance, thinking we know better, not realising any longer the impact of our continuing disobedience, spending longer in that nice warming bath as it heads towards boiling point. You know, we're older, uh, older feet folk. Uh, I think we are at greater risk of losing that edge, that compassion and that fire for justice, passion for evangelism. Yes, so over time, Solomon's conscience was dulled. But what else was at play in Solomon's life? Solomon's huge ego, second point. So how often do you see this, particularly amongst successful people, their ego? Maybe Solomon's obsession with his own glory resulted in his beginning to feel he was so great, so wise, so clever that he could do what he liked. He didn't realise, didn't recognise where all these gifts came from. And perhaps on a smaller scale, when we're blessed with amazing good gifts, we become careless of God too. You know, we've worked hard, we've earned these good things. It's our right to enjoy them. It's all about us. Even if we wouldn't actually put it like this, we really do think we deserve them. It's the opposite of how suffering and persecution can be used to bring us close to God. Our blessings actually dull our minds. They deaden our spiritual antenna. It becomes more about us and our stuff, and we lose humility, and we don't need God any longer. And I wonder whether this is why the church in the materially wealthier West is, is in a relatively weak state compared to the thriving church in, say, Nigeria, materially less, less well-off, or indeed where there's persecution, such as in China. So, adult conscience and egotism both result in us accepting disobedience more and more, and the consequences are serious. The rest of the chapter 11 after verse 9 talks of the consequences of Solomon's sin. And the impact is hugely significant. Significant for him, for his family, for his nation, 
and for many generations to come. We're told of two external wars against Hadad the Edomite and Rezon of Damascus. And then there's civil war and there's rebellion led by a senior civil servant, Jeroboam, whom Solomon himself had promoted. The nation becomes divided. The north under Jeroboam and the south under Solomon's king, uh, son, Rehoboam. And great example, Solomon, because the worship of foreign gods that you practised is now practised far and wide amongst God's people and is so for the next 350 years until Josiah puts a final stop to it, at least in Judah. And there's an inexorable slide towards the final judgment and eventual exile. And that is the way with sin, isn't it? It's not just personal to you, but it affects others around, in your relationships with family and friends and colleagues, in the harm being done to others through a bad word, through the impact of negligence or greed or laziness, or simply as a poor example. It is serious. So what's the solution? Well, it's to do with the heart. Third point, the repentant heart. Six times in the first nine verses, the heart is referred to. And this gives us 21st century Londoners a bit of a problem, because we think of the heart very differently from the Hebrew Bible writers and their original readers. We think of something soft and squishy. We think affection and fondness and lovey-doveyness. But in the Old Testament, the heart represented the entire person. It was seen as the governing centre of an individual. It's what makes a person that person. So when the Bible wants to talk only of, of only feelings and emotions, it generally uses lower organs such as the ugh, bowels or the liver. They're the seat of emotions. But heart means a person's character, personality, will, mind. It's what determines his or her actions. Much, much more than emotion. And we're repeatedly told here that Solomon's heart was turned after foreign gods and away from the Lord God. We see it in verses 2 and 3 and 4 and 9. And that, we're told in verse, in verse 4, is unlike David's heart. And this contrast with David is really instructive. David was a sinner too. He had several wives, not as many as Solomon, but he had several. And he coveted Bathsheba, someone else's wife, and he committed adultery with her. And then he murdered the husband to ensure that he kept her. Wasn't that actually worse than Solomon having hundreds of wives? However, we're told about David in our passage, in verse 4, his heart was wholly true to the Lord his God. And in contrast, we're told about Solomon, verse 6, that he did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done, it says. So there's a contrast here between Solomon and David. And what's different about David, therefore, such that the writer can say that his heart was wholly true to the Lord? It's not that he didn't sin. It's not that he didn't do any wrong. 
but he recognised it and was determined to turn back. David's heart led him to, uh, back to God in repentance. And Solomon's heart led him away from God and was hardened. David testifies to this in the familiar words uh, that we read so often in Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And this heart isn't the sentimental heart, don't forget. It's the centre of our being, our will, our mind. It's a direction we decide to take. A direction away from sin and back to God in repentance. How many times have you heard the announcement at Waterloo Station or maybe on a train? We apologise for the late running of this train, which is due to then whatever the reason of the day is. And there seem to be several reasons, don't there? That's an apology, but it's not repentance. The cynic might say it's just southwestern trains saying they're saying they're saying sorry to appease the frustration of the travellers of the day. And similarly, sometimes I think maybe we can fob God off with a sorry to appease him. So what's different about repentance? It's an acknowledgement that what we're doing is really damaging. Damaging to ourselves, to those around us, to the world. And more importantly, it really matters to God. It's being contrite. It's turning our heart to him, seeking his forgiveness and help in changing what we're doing. It's an active thing. That's why we confess our sins every, every week in church. And why it's good practice too to be aware of our need for his forgiveness daily. And I realise that is actually countercultural. Self-help books might call focus on our weakness and the things we've done wrong as, as morbid, as self-destructive, as negative or damaging. But for Christians, we have the wonderful news of the gospel. If we do repent and trust in the redeeming work of Christ on the cross, we're both forgiven our past disobedience and are also empowered to change. It's not a negative experience, it's a positive experience. It's not unhealthy, it's healthy. We read quite frequently when we come to confession these words. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. They're words from John's first epistle. We are forgiven. We are set free. We are empowered to live a godly, healthy and blessed life. So, continuing in sin risks dulling our minds to God, to the things of God, to our own state. And it's a particular danger if we persist in the sin and our consciences are dulled. And as we receive blessings and status and we allow ourselves to think it's because of, of how good we are, of what we've done. And the solution to stop, to stop this slow boiling of a frog? Well, we need to be more like David and we need to be less like Solomon. Come to God in true repentance with a broken and contrite heart and trust in the Christ who paid the price to earn our forgiveness and our cleansing. We need to turn our heart to God 
that is our biblical heart, our nerve centre, our wills, our decision making, by turning again to the cross of Christ and seeking his spirit for forgiveness and renewal. You know, this has been a, a really challenging lesson this week, but let me end on a, a note of encouragement. Throughout chapter 11, disastrous as it may seem, God did remain in control of events. We're told in verse 14 that he raised up the adversary Hadad. And in verse 23, he raised up Rezan. And he sent his words to Jeroboam through the prophet Ahijah. And he's not doing all of that in a random and capricious fashion, but strictly in accordance with what he said, in accordance with his promises. Solomon did disobey, and God did punish him as he had promised. But notice this. For the sake of David, we're told, verse 34, for the sake of David, he is merciful in delaying judgment until after Solomon died. And not only that, he is merciful in delaying judgment as the destruction of, uh, of, uh, of the nation is not complete. But there's a remnant that's left in the region around Jerusalem. The two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. And just as we're told for the sake of David that God's wrath was withheld from David's son Solomon, for the sake of the greater son of David, Jesus the Christ, God's wrath is withheld from us, not temporarily, but permanently. The punishment due to us was laid on him, and he died that we might be forgiven our disobedience. And as we trust in that, our response must be one of thanks and praise, and in giving our heart, that's our biblical heart, to him. Now, you may notice that we've not yet had our time of confession. That was a deliberate thing. So we have an opportunity now, in a moment of silence, to ask each of ourselves, each one of us, is there an area of our life where we might be harbouring what we think is a minor problem, a small area of disobedience, but which is maybe the beginning of a slippery slope? Maybe it's sex, like Solomon, or pornography, or simply lack of care for the environment or selfishness, or laziness. Or maybe it is the focus on the blessings that we've received, rather than the one who provided them. So now is an opportunity and a good time to turn to God in repentance, to trust in the saving power of our Lord Jesus Christ to forgive us, and to set us free to live for him. And so we have a, a moment of silence, and then Greg is going to come and lead us, uh, in our time of confession.